0: Welcome to this UbuLa audio presentation of The Man from UNCLE by Michael Avalone. Volume 5, Chapter 12, The Man with the Skull All hell broke loose. Even as Solo saw his three shots hit home, picking up the man in the entrance window and smashing him back, the entire passageway suddenly came alive with the ringing of bells. It was a shocking assault on the eardrums. The air of the tunnel seemed to be alive with a high, almost screaming sound. Fortunately, he had hurtled forward, following up the death blasts of his pistol, and Jerry Terry had followed. They reached the fallen sentinel even as they saw what was happening. A rumbling sound came from overhead, cutting through the pealing of the bells. Solo shot a look skyward. A gigantic slab of concrete was coming down. A secret door to seal the passageway to the outside world, frantically he seized Jerry by the wrist and pulled her through just before the massive concrete door thudded shut between them and freedom, sending mounds of dirt and mud flying upwards behind the stone door. The bells continued their mad cacophony, a simple device it took only the firing of a gun to set up a walled blockade in the subterranean fortress. Jerry Terry was sobbing softly, her nerves coming undone at last. He let her cry in peace and stared at their surroundings. They were in the open, the side of some mountainous shelf of rock. Ahead was brown country ground and a thin smattering of gnarled trees. A crow was cawing from one of the branches. Overhead, foggy sunlight washed down over them. It was so still out here compared to the madhouse inside. "'Come on,' he urged. "'We still have to make a run for it.' She nodded, her eyes showing she was still game. She was a peculiar vision stumbling along in Golgotha's cape, her long copper-colored hair catching random rays of sunlight. They began to run in earnest, following a broken trail of stone and sand which seemed to wind downward to lower levels. Solo kept his eyes open, the automatic pistol ready, It was such a peculiar setup, there was no way of knowing what they would run into. The road ended, spewing them into a flat table of land which showed a vast, unbroken meadow, stretching almost as far as the eye could see, only to end before the towering majesty of the Bavarian Alps. Solo cursed. Damn this terrain. It was all of one piece. One place looked exactly like another. "'Solo?' Jerry said softly. Look! He didn't see what she meant at first, because of the camouflaging gnarled trees. Then his eyes cleared, making out the dark outlines of the MiG jet fighter. It sat silent and ready, directly under a canopy of branches, its nose pointed toward the wide meadow before it. Only three hundred yards away, there was no one in sight, but the bells were still sounding faintly somewhere, and there was no time to lose. It was now or never for both of them. Jerry, listen. I'm way ahead of you. Let's move out. He was glad she understood. Okay. We'll be clay pigeons if anybody is watching. On the other hand, we're dead anyway. May I say it's been nice knowing you. Forget it. We're going to get out, Napoleon, and we can take up the subject there. He kissed her briefly, nodding half to himself, and then sprinted for the plane, knowing she would follow as best she could. He ran with his head low, his legs churning, putting forth everything he had for the run. There was no sense in looking back, no point in trying to pick out targets for the automatic. Either way, they had nothing but time on their side, time, surprise, and the fact that they were fast-moving targets. Once, Solo had competed at the 100-yard dash at college. He had come in first, a stride ahead of the number two man. He had never forgotten the fever of the lungs from such a run, the flying spurt of the body as it strained for the tape. Even as he had plunged across the finish line to the cheers of the stadium, he had never forgotten the almost drunken exultation of success. It was something like that now. The meadow grass disappearing beneath his heels, the plane looming closer, the expectation of a burst of gunfire, the fierce straining of his muscles. He was only dimly aware of Jerry Terry's figure somewhere behind him. He could only keep his eyes to the left and right, a periphery of perhaps ninety degrees. There was nothing to alarm him from the front. The ship was unprotected. It was only the area behind them that disturbed him. The first shot came. A singing, whining crack of sound across the flatlands, dirt geysered somewhere near his heel. Another crack. Two more. He reached the ship and turned, just in time to catch Jerry Terry stumbling before him, falling to the earth. He stilled the alarm in his chest and picked up his targets. Two uniformed men, rifles leveled, were stationed in the rocky recesses of the lowlands before the mountain too far away for his pistol to be of much use. Yet he blasted away all the same and had the extreme satisfaction of seeing them both duck back frantically. Quickly, he helped Jerry up the wing, practically hurling her into the cockpit. It was only designed to accommodate one person, but they were not about to concern themselves over such trifling matters just now. She fell in. The cloak caught on a rivet screw, but she was all right as far as he could tell. "'I don't know if I can fly one of these,' she panted. "'You won't have to,' he said. "'I'll do it. Scrunch down and away we go.' He found the controls, emptying the pistol as he clambered in. But the men were up and running now, coming on fast as they realized how close the quarry was to getting away. Solo had a bad few seconds trying to decipher the Russian words on the instrument panel. "'But a plane was a plane,' be it a Flying Jenny or a MiG. The rocket starters were going to be the big question, never mind the basic principles of aerodynamics. Solo found the release buttons, Blessing Korea, where he had acquired skimpy knowledge of the MiG fighter, from one that had come down on the banks of the Yalu River, ten minutes away from Solo's reconnaissance patrol. Crack! Crack! Two rifle shots were lost in the budding blast of the takeoff. The rockets whooshed with noise. He dug out the Luger, sighted quickly, and got a shot off. One of the running soldiers suddenly dropped his rifle and rolled crazily on the turf. The other kept coming. From that moment on, getting off the ground was his only consideration. With Jerry Terry cramped into the narrow space between him and the floor of the ship, Solo eased back on the controls. With a powerful rush of speed, the MiG nosed forward, sending leaves flying before the tremendous backwash. The thunder of the engines drowned out everything else. The ship shot forward, thrusting like a rocket. The wheels lifted. The sun flooded Solo's face, and the wide, clear sky stretched before him. Below, the soldier aimed a final, futile shot that died on the wind. Jerry, see if you can work that radio— We'll contact NATO radar before they can send some flyboys up to shoot us down. Not too sure about the border flyers around here. Jerry. It was only then that he saw the girl was bleeding. A streak of scarlet was painting her right hand. Hey, he began. What gives? Oh, that smarts, she murmured drowsily, closing her eyes in pain, exhaustion, and shock. The thundering blast of the MiG drowned out Napoleon Solos fluent curses. Golgotha sat before a shortwave radio, complete with amplifiers and headphones. He had found another cloak. Such expression as his face could show registered extreme hatred. In his fantastically unreal voice, he spoke of his displeasure. It was exactly one hour since he had recovered in the dungeon room to find himself shamed and disgraced. By the reckoning of the account from the guards, the man Solo and his lady confederate had escaped in the MiG, sometime in that elapsed period of sixty minutes. Even the intricate network of alarm bells had been fruitless. Obviously, this Solo was a resourceful man. There was some vindication at that. Golgotha had warned the council repeatedly that Uncle was not to be dismissed lightly. I repeat most strongly, we must continue with Plan M. I see no reason to delay. It is imperative that we move now, if we are to convince the democracies that we have a weapon which will make them heed our demands. U and S should have sufficed, but they were so small-scale. They served only our test purposes. Now we must move ahead to the larger considerations. Therefore, I respectfully advise that Plan M go into effect immediately. A voice spoke up from the amplifier. The corpse of Stuart Fromms? They will gain nothing from it. Golgotha chuckled with deep satisfaction. A skeleton will reveal little... I see no reason to worry on that score. You are certain he had none of the elements secured anywhere on his person? None whatsoever. In dying, he only had time to dress himself. A small curiosity there, and one our research department might well explore. The element had confused him so thoroughly and upset his mental processes. That he attired himself in reverse. Repeat that, I do not understand. Golgotha clarified the subject of how Stuart Frome's corpse had been attired when claimed by Napoleon Solo. Excellent, Golgotha, excellent. The Council will be pleased. Another successful residue of your element. Perhaps you are right. Golgotha's cavernous eyes gleamed. You will recommend Plan M, then? Yes, I think I will. We are ready to make our move now, I should say. You make my day, Golgotha crowed. Never fear about Napoleon Solo. I will exterminate him as soon as it is feasible. At best, he is no more than an efficient enemy agent. The voice on the amplifier didn't care one way or the other. Though as you see fit, I will contact you at the same time tomorrow. Farewell. Farewell, Golgotha. The man with the skull removed the headset from his twisted stumps of ears. His mouth parted, uttering a noise of inner ecstasy. The moment would soon come when all the world would know of his genius, and Thrush itself would elevate him to the council. Plan U had been Utangaville. Plan S had been Speyerwood. Plan M would be Munich. Napoleon Solo eased the mink down in a short approach, mindful of the twin patrol planes hugging his tail, as he had expected they were being intercepted barely 20 minutes outside of Orangeburg. There was no use arguing. The MiG could have easily outdistanced the patrol planes. They were no competition in the speed department, being mere monoplanes of the Cessna design. But there were two considerations. First, they could call out the whole Air Force, and second, Jerry Terry was unconscious. She needed doctoring as soon as possible. Therefore, when the harsh, guttural voice broke in on his radio set, which he had left open intentionally, He saw no other course but swift cooperation. The landing strip was a long concrete runway set somewhere in German territory. Solo lowered his landing gear, cut his flying speed, and waited grimly. Landings were far trickier than takeoffs. Coming in at better than 120 miles an hour would be no picnic. And it wasn't. The Meg bounced like a rubber ball, tires screaming and burning, But Solo had the satisfaction of bringing it down in one piece. After that, the rest would be gravy. Once he had explained his position to the NATO officials, it ought to be fairly simple. He climbed stiffly from the cockpit, easing Jerry Terry to a standing position. He kept his eyes open, anxious to evaluate the amount of interest his strange appearance had fostered. A MIG had to be troubled in this day and age. There was a stone administration building of sorts and a long low hangar not too large in size possibly a remote outpost strategically situated france was still to the west he checked the range of mountains showing behind him and then there was no more time to look for outstanding landmarks the small airfield was in an uproar uniformed men were rushing for the administration building rifles at high port The patrol planes had taxied into view behind him, turning sharply to face his own plane, like matching bookends. Solo didn't wait for any further activity. He jumped to the ground, feeling the concrete jar his feet. Jerry Terry, as compactly as she was built, felt very heavy. He heard footsteps behind him and a click of rifle bolts driving home, and then a maddeningly familiar voice. we meet again, Mr. Solo. As you can see, I am not as expendable as all that. He froze, a sudden recognition dawning with the subtlety of a thunderclap. He turned, forcing himself to smile. Well, well. Heard any loud humming sounds lately? Standing before him, dressed in an official-looking gray uniform, was Denise Raymond, Even boots, jodhpurs, visor cap, and German Luger, jutting from her smooth fingers, could not hide the beauty of her face and figure. "'Yes, Mr. Solo, and now it will be my turn to hand out the punishment. Take him, see if the girl isn't charming, and then bring Mr. Solo to my office. There are a few questions he must answer.' Napoleon Solo shrugged, Thrush again, and he had flown right into their waiting arms. Chapter thirteen Kiss Me Before You Die The private interview began within ten minutes of their unscheduled landing. Solo was thankful for small favors. For some reason, Denise Fremont seemed to be in charge here, and she wanted to question him privately. You're not looking eminently officerish, Denise. I rather like you in that uniform though I must say I much prefer silver lame on lady agents. Please, spare me your sarcasms. We may be alone, but I've only to press a buzzer and you will be extremely incapable of escaping from this place alive. Also, as you see, I have a luger. He remained seated in the hard-backed wooden chair. She had ushered him into this tiny cubicle in the stone building and was now ensconced behind a low metal desk idly training a dark luger at his heart. It would be useless to try anything sudden or ill-timed. She knew it, and he knew it. She had removed the visored hat and placed it to her left on the desk. Her dark hair was wound in a severe yet attractive bun behind her neck. "'You should have told me you were a colonel back in Paris,' Solo said lightly. "'We could have had all kinds of fun saluting and marching back and forth.' She frowned at him, eyes cautious. Yes, I am a colonel. I have until now killed 27 men. I will kill more. I will kill you when the time comes. I tell you all this so we will not waste each other's time with sentimentalities of the Hotel International. You are an assignment then, however pleasant, and you still are. But that is all you will ever mean to me, Napoleon Solo. Okay, if you say so, Colonel. He had already measured distances and opportunities, and done the battle math, and concluded with regret that nothing could be accomplished in this office. It was so small that the woman would have little to do but start blasting away. A lady with twenty seven notches on her luger would have no difficulty managing the twenty eighth one. I am interested in what you have to say, Solo. He smiled. ''Nice to know I have a ready audience. What about the girl? There's nothing she can tell you.'' ''When she's revived, she'll be brought here. One can find out many things when two prisoners are involved. Do you not think?'' He shrugged. ''She doesn't mean a thing to me.'' Denise Fermont laughed. ''Perhaps not, but I've been instructed to take the chance. The unit you escaped from has lost their opportunity.'' When your escape was relayed here, we waited. I must confess I never thought I'd see you again. Well, you're seeing me now. So, what do we do? She showed her teeth in a smile, but her eyes were cold. You ought to provide a list of names, I understand. Is that all you want? I got a million of them. Daniel Boone, George Washington, Dwight Eisenhower, my Aunt Trudy. Stop it! she snapped, her military composure breaking. Foolish talk will get you nowhere. Would you like to watch when the girl dies? It won't be a pleasant death, I assure you. I can think of several other things I would prefer, he admitted. There was a black telephone on the desk. Solo could see that Denise Ramon was expectant, waiting for it to ring. He gauged the distance between himself and the desk. Too far. He would have to find another way. So what's a nice girl like you doing in the spy business, huh, Denise? Her dark eyebrows shifted in surprise. I believe in the future of what I'm doing. The same, no doubt, as you. That is reward enough. And when the day comes... She paused, catching herself. Yeah, go on, he urged. You are going to say something about... Today, Europe, tomorrow, the world? You know, the song never changes, does it? Only different people sing it from time to time. Her eyes flashed, and the luger jutted menacingly across the top of the desk. You are an idiot, she said quietly. I should kill you now and claim you attempted to escape. Go ahead. I can make it look good. I'll reach across the desk and kiss you. She bit her lip. A flush rising in her face, her eyes narrowed as she shook her head. No, you will not trick me. In spite of what we shared at the International, there are many men yet, and I am still young. You're going to get old in this business, lady. Take my word for it. I only want your word on names and places in the Uncle Organization. Sorry, all out of names now. We shall see. The phone rang. Deftly she spun the receiver to her ear and listened. Good. At what's then. She replaced the receiver. He didn't like the pleased smile on her face. So, you won't change your mind solo? It's not my business to change my mind. I thought you knew that much about me, Denise. She stood up, brushing her jodhpurs with her left hand and tugging the Sam Brown belt which girdled her slim waist. The luger centered on his chest. She returned the officer's cap to her head. Get up, she commanded, and walk through that door. We shall see how much agony your lovely friend would have to endure before you begin to tell us what we want to hear. Our doctor has patched her up so that she would be wide awake to enjoy her coming torment. I might. "'You certainly are a bitch, aren't you?' "'Move!' was all she said, motioning him toward the other door of the cubicle. Solo rose and sauntered toward the barrier, keeping his hands away from his body. There was no telling what was behind that door. It was as bad as he had expected. Worse, possibly." was one thing to be in the soup himself, quite another to have to stand around while it was stirred with somebody he liked. The door opened on a short corridor without illumination, which led into the long low hangar. Solo could smell the heavy odor of gasoline and grease. There was a stench like burning rubber in the air, too. The hangar was empty of aircraft. The wide doors had been left open, hanging crookedly on their steel running bars to show the German landscape. The mountain stood poised in view beyond the tarmac. There were just two uniformed officers and Jerry Terry in the building. They had formed a small semicircle in the center of the hangar. At first, Solo had no notion of what they were doing, until Denise Vermont nudged him sharply with the muzzle of the Luger. The soldiers had Jerry Terry suspended between them, each holding one of her arms. She was made to stand straddle-legged to support her own weight, without slumping. Her face was ashen and drained of life. Despite the bandaged wound of her shoulder, she was standing up and taking notice, notice that closed her mouth in terror. There was a metal barrier of sorts on the concrete floor. It was alive with radiant heat of some kind, glowing like a sunburst. Solo could feel the suffocating warmth as they drew near. There was something hopelessly cruel about the white-hot poker resting in the heart of the brazier. An electric cord ran from the handle of the thing to a wall outlet nearby. The faces of the two soldiers were dull and expressionless, like trained seals, Solo thought. They could stick knives in a lovely girl and not raise a sweat, or brand her with a metal burning tool, the sort of instrument used to forge letters and numbers on steel parts. Denise Fremont halted him and stepped around to where she could keep him in her sights. Must I spell it all out for you, Solo? I could print the message across Miss face. She indicated the metal burner and brazier. I get the idea. Roast lady spy if I don't open my big mouth. Jerry Terry swallowed nervously, shaking her head, but her eyes had never left, the white-hot tip of the burning poker. You don't like me anyway, remember, Solo? Just forget about it. Denise Fermont spun on her viciously. Quiet, you fool. He can save you a great deal of pain. As Denise fermont glared at the girl, Solo moved one step toward her. It was as far as he dared go with the guards watching, but it would have to be far enough. Denise was still well beyond arm's length, but "'Solo cleared his throat. "'All right, then, Denise. "'Unaccustomed as I am to public squealing, "'she turned back toward him, surprised he was giving in so easily. "'It put her off her guard just enough. "'Solo's right leg shot upward and his body arched backward "'in a perfectly executed savant kick. "'The tip of his shoe caught the Luger directly under the barrel, "'sending it high into the air above their heads.' it flipped twice neatly and he caught it before it hit the floor he turned it to proper position his finger on the trigger denise fermont fell back with a shriek and the two men holding jerry terry released her and went for their guns unfortunately for them their weapons were slung behind their shoulders in the required form for soldiers bearing rifles yet they were foolhardy and wouldn't stop released from their grip jerry terry fell hard to the floor Denise Fremont, in her anxiety to regain control of the situation, went wildly for the white-hot poker in the brazier. There was no time to shout orders or commands to halt the carnage. The soldiers were bringing their rifles to bear, and Denise Fremont was already brandishing the glowing poker. Solo's first shot caught one of the soldiers high in the chest and spun him around. His second found a nesting place directly in the forehead of the other man. Both of them were dead before they hit the stone floor of the hangar. And then there was Denise. If she had stopped, if she had for a moment considered she was going up against a marksman at close quarters, he may have stayed his hand. He didn't want to shoot the woman. She could be valuable later. But Denise Fremont had lost all power to think coherently or to evaluate consequences. All of her headlong charge with the poker held like a flaming rapier, was spearheaded for the body of Napoleon Solo. Unluckily for her, he didn't have the time for a fancier, well-chosen shot, the time had arrived at that split second when all lives are changed by the next bullet. Solo triggered the Luger once more, a single telling shot. He stood and watched as Denise Ramont's face came apart with surprise and pain as if she had never believed he would actually shoot her. The poker described a smoking eddy as it clanged to the stone, shooting off sparks. Denise Tremont crumbled, her hands holding her sand Brown belt as if that alone could hold her up and keep her from dying. Wordlessly, Solo stepped over her body and lifted Jerry Terry to her feet. He kept an eye on the hangar entrance. Once again, the race would be to the swift. Despite the obvious pain and confusion she was undergoing, Jerry couldn't take her eyes off Denise Vermont's prone figure, curled up in death. Solo, you killed her! Yeah, lecture me later, he said impatiently. Right now, let's get to that mig and get out of here. Okay? There's nothing else. Her eyes were dazed. Come on, we have to move. Can you walk? She nodded dumbly allowing him to half-push, half-drag her to the tarmac. Solo flung a sweeping search over the field. The MiG was where he had parked it, and it was even facing toward takeoff. There was no sign of the patrol planes. It seemed as if there was no one else on the field. Everybody had been accounted for. "'You wide awake now, Terry?' he barked. "'Yes, yes.' "'All right, then. Come on. And don't look back. Just remember.' It was Denise or us. Jerry Terry said nothing further. She lowered her head and staggered for the MiG. Solo was just behind her, imploring the silent gods to stay with them for just five more minutes until he got to that damn MiG and got it airborne once again. But even as he made the unspoken plea, he could see the heavy motor lorry turn in from the roadway about 500 yards down the field. Grimly, he hurried Jerry Terry ahead of him, not bothering to mention the minor detail that their flight was not unobserved. When the hounds were on the scent, it was downright amazing how they showed up in the most inopportune times. What was even worse, the pain had come back. Sharp, excruciating agony coursed through his body. Partridge of the Paris Overseas Press Club was in the bar finding new joy in the way Stanley mixed martinis when he was summoned to the telephone. Shrugging heroically, he lifted his bulk from the leather stool and had a houseboy plug in a phone for him. "'Partridge here,' he said tiredly. "'Who gives the given signal?' a crisp voice asked. He became alert immediately. "'You do.' "'Who tells the untold millions? "'I do.' He knew it was Napoleon Solo's voice at the other end. But one had to play the code out. Who had the second knife? The same chap who had the first one. Billy, I need your help and pronto, Solo said. Fire away, old sport. Fire one. I'm sitting at Landry's airstrip. I owe him thousands of dollars for wrecking his plane. He won't take a MiG in trade, and the French Air Force is pretty mad at me for landing one in. Fire two, I've got a very sick girlfriend on my hands. She could die if she doesn't see a doctor soon. Fire three, the world is in pretty damn sad shape. You better tell my uncle about it. No doubt he's dying to hear from me. I see. Landry's. Good show, Be there in two hours. I'll call your uncle, of course. Think you can hold out until then? I'll try, Billy. Thanks. Ever the faith endures? Partridge chuckled. Anything else? No, that ought to cover the preliminaries. The girl is my first concern right now. Off I go, then. William Partridge hung up, drummed the phone for three taut seconds of preparation, downed his martini zestfully, and left the bar like a shot. Stanley the bartender had never seen him move so fast. "'Ilya Nikovitch Kiryakin was unhappy. "'In his tiny west-side apartment in Manhattan, "'he paced the rooms, looking for something to do. "'Working overtime at headquarters "'had not improved his restlessness. "'There was just so much they had been able to discover "'about Stuart Fromm's corpse "'and that very, very special piece of dynamite "'his dead toes had revealed, the tiny capsule. "'If it was what the lab boys expected,' then things indeed would get very bad around the world kiriakhin tried not to think about napoleon solo awkward business liking a fellow agent when the going got rough as it usually did it was a terrible thing not to be on hand to assist with the difficulty kiriakhin was level-headed enough to despise the russian side of his nature which tended toward gloomy prophecy still an agent of napoleon's capabilities "'should be able to take care of himself. "'Memory of Stuart Frome's and his capabilities "'made Kiriakin's brow cloud over again. "'Damn this infernal business of waiting and waiting and waiting. "'One had to be doing something at all times. "'It was a must.' "'Chapter Fourteen, Send Him to the Cemetery.' London fog settled like a blanket over the city. The ruddy pea soups of legend and fact had closed lovingly over buildings, cobbled streets, and historic landmarks. The Cumberland Hotel sat squarely in the center of the heaviest concentration of the vapors. The fog did not swirl or dance or filter. It hung curtain-like over London. Waverley ensconced behind a glass-topped desk, in a suite of rooms on the fourth floor was holding court he was dressed once more in his familiar tweeds yet there was something jaunty about his manner the red carnation adorning his lapel lent a touch of joviality seldom seen by his colleagues to his appearance seated at various points of the modernistically furnished room were napoleon solo jerry terry and ilia karyakin solo wore a dark suit of conservative cut and a sober powder-blue tie. His face was as unlined and freshly handsome as ever. Jerry Terry, her long copper hair neatly bound with a red headband, looked beautiful and invulnerable in a beige woolen sheath dress. The contrasting white sling in which her right arm was cradled somehow seemed an afterthought rather than a necessity. Kiriakhin's attire was less unkempt than usual, He had managed to appear in a pressed, clean suit of indeterminate grey. The atmosphere was cordial and friendly. Smoke from Solo's cigarette filled the air. "'So, Partridge got you out, Solo,' Waverly concluded. "'Partridge got us out,' Solo amended, winding his account of the adventure into a neat summarization of the facts. Waverly had evinced keen interest when Golgotha had entered the narration. Even Kiriakhan had never seen Waverly so drawn out before. Go, Gotha. We've been waiting for his hand in this. High time, too. Thrush had to enlist a man of his stripes sooner or later. He's a new one on me, sir, Sulla remarked, smiling at Jerry Terry. Memory of that flight in the MIG made him wince. Wrestling with unfamiliar controls and fighting to stanch the flow of blood from her shoulder with his free hand to keep her from bleeding to death. It was all over, for the time being. They could breathe for a bit. I've never heard of Golgotha. Geriakon? Waverly murmured. The young Russian smiled at Solo and the girl. Napoleon, Golgotha is Kron's opposite number, an absolutely brilliant chemist. has had him on file for years, at least up until there was a fire explosion in his laboratory in Budapest in 54. He's been out of sight since then. Everyone assumed he was alive, but had somehow been disfigured in the blast. We've been waiting for him to show up with Thrush. He's exactly the sort of man they would find use for, brilliant, embittered, and hungry for some sort of fame in his own field. You think he's come up with some super drug that scored so heavily in Utangaville and Sparewood? It's a safe guess at this writing, Napoleon. The man's a wizard and our lab results check out to something frightening. In fact, if we don't find the stockpile of this unknown element, the world is in for a pretty bad time. Solo frowned waverly. From his pellet. Yes, Solo, our worst fears are realized now, his chief said heavily. Thrush has found a blood catalyst, which causes a man to literally lose his mind and all sense of mental coordination. Lord knows what a sight those two towns must have been, with the entire populace running amuck. And they've been improving their methods since then. Decomposition of the body is now sped up to less than twenty-four hours of full cyclic effect. Fromes is now no more than a skeleton. Sulla restrained a visible shudder. What was in the pellet? Kiryakin laughed harshly. What good would the chemical composition do for you, Napoleon? It's enough to say it is a never-before-known agent. The lab is trying to break it down now. We only know what it can do. After Fromm's odd case, I tried it on guinea pigs and white mice. They lasted three hours. If Thrush has it, we're in for it, as I said. Stockpile, you said. Yes, Waverley agreed. It's a patent. Build up enough of a supply to cover the universe. I would say so. That makes a lot of sense to me, Jerry Terry said. There'd be no end of places to hide something that small. So innocuous-looking, too. Waverly pyramided his lean fingers, his eyes sweeping over the three of them. He looked almost kindly for a change. They would never know how much he appreciated all three of them at that precise moment. It was a comfort... To talk with one's own kind, the experience of the jet bomber was still too fresh in Waverley's mind. That cemetery, Mister Waverley, Solo suggested, they were awfully determined about our not taking a look there. True enough, Solo, but that cemetery checks out. Orangeburg, built in 1922, spared by the Allies in World War Two. If it were blind of some kind, we'd have to have proof. You don't go poking around cemeteries, Solo. It's just not done. The Queen Mother herself couldn't order such a thing. Queen? There was a startled expression on Napoleon Solo's face. Waverley leaned forward, catching the odd look. He half smiled. I was only being amusing, Solo. What did you think of something? I'm not sure. Napoleon, what is it? Kiryakin prodded, knowing the make-up of the man who was his fellow agent. Jerry Terry sat enthralled. The rapport between the three men was suddenly electrifying. Mr. Waverly said gently, You thought of something. Yeah, yeah, wait. The word Queen did it. Queen, Queen. Oh, hell, that's got to be it. Solo sprang to his feet. Mysteries. Stew was a mystery fan. He read them by the cartload. And now I remember. His favorite author was Ellery Queen. Go on, Solo, go on. The hotel suite was silent save for Solo's energetic pacing back and forth. Just wait a second. I haven't got it all yet. But but hear me out. It helps the wheels to turn. What did we have? Stu's body with clothes on backwards, right? They let him stay that way for us to find, right? So it had to be okay with them. Otherwise, they would have guessed he was trying to leave some kind of a message. And by God, it all falls neatly into place. They let him stay with his clothes reversed because they thought it was one of the after-effects of their damn mind-killing drug. Yeah, that's that's got to be it. Or they would have switched his clothing back to normal, as sure as God made little rotten agents. Don't you see? Stuart must have been naked, maybe in the tub or something when the effects of the stuff hit him. They had to know that, and he dressed backwards, and all the time they thought he wasn't coordinating. Yet, actually, he was thinking more clearly than any man I've ever known. His enthusiasm and logic were contagious. Solo's three listeners dared not interrupt lest they break the chain of his magic. Now, Stu knew that I knew he was a fanatical mystery fan. Above all, an Ellery Queen fan. So he did the one thing to point the finger at what he had discovered. He had found the drug, stuck a pellet between his toes, but in case that was discovered, he had told us as surely as if he had written it in black letters, a foot high exactly where to look. It was a long shot, a long, long shot, but I feel it's paid off. Waverley coughed. Napoleon Solo smiled. Sorry, sir. I won't keep you waiting any longer. In case you don't know, the most famous Ellery Queen mystery of them all begins with the corpse of a man found, on which all the clothing had been reversed. The killer did this to conceal the fact that the man had been a priest. Therefore, the absence of the tie was not immediately apparent as it would have normally been. Soto, priest, tie, Waverley demurred. I fail to see where this is going. Let me finish. As I say, That book is Ellery Queen's most famous, been reprinted a thousand times, and people all over the world who go in for mysteries remember it. That's the important point that Stu didn't want me to miss, the title of the famous book. Jerry Terry suddenly said in a very clear voice, I'll be damned, the Chinese Orange Mystery. Exactly, the Chinese Orange Mystery pointing to one stockpile that has to be destroyed at all costs. There was a new silence in the room. Orange, Kyriakin said almost ruefully, "What a gamble he took. Orangeburg Cemetery, Waverly said with grim finality. Tiesendorf. Darkness in the Village A few scattered lights, the livestock lowing in sheds. A rural solitude dominated the hamlet at five o'clock in the morning. The sky was moody black, pierced only by an occasional star. There was a light gleaming in Herr Burgermeister's house, a lone bulb shining steadily through the drab linen curtains. Herr Mueller was busy with a visitor, the awesome, terrifying man he knew only as Herr. "'Bitter, what do you bother me now?' "'A friend of mine has passed,' Golgotha said. "'He must be buried immediately.' Herr Mueller's face in the harsh light of the bulb reflected fear. "'Hach! Another one?' "'Yes. Poor fellow died of a tumour. "'Brain tumour. There was no chance.' It's better this way. Ja, yeah, ja. Yeah. Herr Mueller sipped his glass of Rhine wine. He did not like these conferences with this strange cloaked man. The money was fine. One hundred thousand new marks. But Gott in Himmel, was it worth it to have to talk with this man from hell each time? The coffin will be at your friend's mortuary in the morning. You will see to it. That all the arrangements are satisfactory, you must arrive at Orangeburg Cemetery no later than noon. It has been agreed on that way. Yeah, I will do that, same as ever. Golgotha chuckled dryly. "You're sweating here, Mueller. Are you warm?" "Ambition," muttered the Bürgermeister. A little. I feel tired. It makes me sweat. Certainly, you must not misunderstand, my dear. The scrawny mayor cried, "My devotion is strong. It had best remain so." The unspoken threat lingered in the closeness of the room. Uh, I will do the job. You must. We have other coffins, many. "'Many coffins. "'Sometimes we actually do use them "'as they were intended to be used. "'Remember that, Herr Müller?' "'The Burgermeister paled. "'Ja, yeah, I remember.' "'Golgotha stood up, a towering dark shadow "'who cast a ghostly silhouette across the floor. "'He seemed all of seven feet tall "'and as palpable as a nightmare.' Ober will become famous, Herr Mueller. People will point to it one day and say, "There, there is the place where it all happened." Greatness will come to Ober Tiesendorf, Herr Mueller, and fame, an exalted memory. Remember that. I will remember, Herr Mueller whispered, wishing his frightening visitor would go as silently as he always came. The man completely destroyed whatever soul he had left. Good. Noon, then. One coffin. Orangeburg. Gute Nacht, Herr Müller. Nacht, my dear. With his cloak wrapped around him like a shroud, Golgotha left. Herr Müller crossed himself again, as he always did, and then reached once more for the bottle of Rhine wine. The ghastly business would begin all over again on the morrow. There was not a thing he could do to stop it. They are dumped. What in God's name were they burying in that lovely cemetery just beyond the rim rock? Herr Mueller did not know. He was only certain of one thing: the coffins he had delivered for the Herr had never contained dead bodies. He did not care what the death certificate claimed, nor how many headstones they had put up with all the lying inscriptions. Orangeburg was not a place where dead men slept.